written to draw up an accurate account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me, Luke, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Max, you're so welcome here. We're looking forward to what you have to say. Great. <clears throat> well, thank you so much, James. Um, it's great to be with you uh, this evening. So that passage that James just read to us from Luke's Gospel is really interesting because when scholars look at that passage, um, they notice that it's actually quite similar to the introductions to a number of really important um, works of historiography from the ancient world. So uh, Josephus and Polybius, um, these are some really important um, writers of history from um, the ancient world, and they began their works with um, prefaces that sound a little bit like the beginning of Luke's gospel. So Luke is claiming in this way he introduces his gospel to be writing um, in broadly the same kind of genre as these great works of history. And you notice that he, he claims to have received um, information that came down to him from eyewitnesses. And moreover, he claims to have investigated everything carefully from the beginning. But are these claims true? Um, when we look at these Gospels and um, try to assess you know, what, what kind of um, material we have here, are they trustworthy accounts of Jesus' life? Um, what, um, what do we come up with? And that's the question that we're going to be grappling with this evening for the next 20 minutes or so. And I think um, the first thing to say about this is that when you come to this topic, um, there is a huge amount out there in, in our popular culture today, in the media, um, on the internet, <clears throat> and much of it would seem to suggest that the Gospels are highly unreliable, maybe that Jesus didn't even exist at all. Michel Onfray is um, a philosopher, a French philosopher, um, and he um, was one of the sort of cohort of new atheists, and in his book, Michel Onfray said this, um, he said that Jesus' existence has not been historically established. No contemporary documentation of the event, no archaeological proof, nothing certain exists today. And so I think it's quite understandable that if you were only ever exposed to this sort of thing, um, if you just do a Google search for, did Jesus exist?, you'll come up with loads of websites that will, make it, will give you the impression that this is a really contested question. But actually, there really is quite a big gulf between what you might see on the internet and you know, on the television and the, on the news around sort of Christmas and Easter time and what um, scholars who specialize in ancient history and in particular in the field of early Christianity in the New Testament tens of thousands of scholars at secular universities around the world. Um, and E.P. Sanders um, 
is a, a, a prominent such scholar. He was professor of New Testament at Oxford. Um, he went on to be at Duke University. As far as I know, I think he's fairly agnostic when it comes to God. And so he, he doesn't kind of obviously have a, a dog in the fight. But Sanders um, really um, kind of summarizes the consensus of, uh, of scholarship when at the beginning of one of his books, he writes that there are no substantial doubts about the general course of Jesus' life, when and where he lived, approximately when and where he died, and the sort of thing he did during his public activity. And Sanders goes on to give a list of facts that are accepted by virtually all scholars in this field of um, early Christianity and, and historical Jesus studies about Jesus' life, such as that he was a Galilean itinerant teacher uh, who had a reputation as a miracle worker, whatever might explain that, who taught in parables, taught about the arrival of the kingdom of God, um, who ended up being crucified by the Romans, and so on. And so, in actual fact, despite what we might, you know, the impression that we might gain from the media and from the internet, there really isn't any serious question in, in scholarship um, as to this question of whether Jesus existed. There is a sort of fairly solid core of facts um, about Jesus' life that, that are widely agreed upon. And that's not to say that everyone agrees that the New Testament is highly reliable, but that there is at least this core of facts about Jesus. And um, Bart Ehrman is someone you've probably heard of uh, because he's quite famous for writing books that sort of seem to take a pop at Christianity and, and do sort of try to argue that the Gospels are, are a bit ropey and that they've got contradictions and so on. But nonetheless, Bart Ehrman says quite clearly, no serious historian doubts the existence of Jesus. Um, and he goes on to say, we have more evidence for Jesus than for almost anyone of his time period. So, it's helpful, I think, to begin um, this question and appreciate we really are going to have to cram in uh, a lot here. Um, but it's helpful to begin by thinking about what historians are looking for just in general when they want to assess uh, a document purporting to speak about a historical figure. Um, how should they go about testing its reliability? Well, one important question is, is the author in a good position to know what happened? And this uh, is going to have to do with things like how long after the events was the, the text written? Um, did the author have access to reliable information, ultimately deriving from eyewitnesses? Another question that's going to be really important is, does this document... Um, kind of in the way that it speaks about the world <clears throat> in which this figure and, and these events happened, does its picture of the world kind of fit with what we know about the time and place from archaeology and other, um, other documents? So, for example, if it talks about coins um, or, you know, particular weapons that soldiers used in a battle... And if we know from archaeology that actually those weapons weren't used at that time and place, or if those are the wrong kinds of coins, that's just going to give a sense that this text uh, and the author um, doesn't really kind of know about um, the time and place they're talking about. Whereas if it gets lots of these little details right, things to do with you know, the geography, the way of life, 
small things um, that would be hard to get right, particularly in a, in a time when there was no such thing as Google or Wikipedia. And as we'll see, the, the New Testament um, Gospels really do get all sorts of very small details right that would be hard to, to guess. And then third question that can kind of help focus our thinking here is, are there um, other independent sources which attest the same events? And what historians are looking for is not that there are multiple sources that all say exactly the same thing. And in fact, if they did have that situation, you would think that those sources are not really independent from one another. But what's really ideal is to have several sources and they may indeed contradict each other on some of the smaller details, but if, they, if the gist is the same, the core is kind of there, then that's very good indeed. Okay, so this is basically going to structure the way that we come at the topic for, for the rest of what I'm going to say. So with respect to that first question, is the author in a good position to know what happened? Let's just consider the time gap between uh, the life of Jesus crucified probably in 30 AD, possibly 33, but most think 30. Um, the, the time gap from those events to the text being written down. And I think it can be helpful here because people do often say, oh gosh, you know, several decades is a long time for things to get changed and so on. Well, I think it's helpful to get a sense of what's normal in ancient history by looking at some significant figures um, and looking at the, the gap in time between when they lived uh, and, the, uh, and when the earliest documents that we have available to us now were written. So let's have a look at Alexander the Great, hugely influential figure, um, conquered much of the known world on behalf of Greece. Um, he's the reason, you know, his conquests are the reason that by the time of Jesus, um, Greek was the common language of the world. So, the um, earliest <clears throat> texts that give us any real detailed information about Alexander's life is the writings of Polybius. Um, that's, at least that's all that survived to today, and that's a gap of 120 years. And yet, scholars today are pretty confident that we can know quite a lot about Alexander the Great's life on the basis of uh, these texts. Um, the emperor Tiberius was the emperor um, when Jesus was crucified. The earliest texts that give us biographical information about Tiberius is that 77 years after Tiberius died. But again, um, scholars today are confident that we can reconstruct a lot about Tiberius's life. So when we come to Jesus, well, pretty much all scholars agree that Paul's letters are the earliest documents written that talk about uh, this figure of Jesus um, and give us some information about what Jesus did and said. And Paul's letters were written starting from 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion. So that's really very small time gap in terms of ancient history. And what's more, um, Paul <clears throat> clearly uh, knew some of the most important eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, um, Peter, the disciple, and James, the brother of Jesus. Um, but then as for even the, the latest dating, really, that, that any scholar today would give to John's gospel, the, probably the last gospel to be written, uh, 70 years after Jesus' crucifixion, 
Um, even that is, is actually a smaller time gap than the gap between Tiberius's uh, death and uh, Tacitus is writing about him. So I think it's quite helpful to put this in perspective. And then actually Mark's gospel, probably the earliest gospel, is written maybe 30 to 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. So actually it compares really quite favorably when we just take a step back and look at what's normal for ancient history. And as we'll, we'll go on to see in a minute, there are a, no, there are a number of reasons for thinking that these gospel authors... Um, were writing um, in a way that um, derived their information ultimately from eyewitnesses. Okay, so let's consider this second question. Um, Do these texts kind of fit with the world um, of first century Palestine, Uh, the, the place and time in which Jesus lived and ministered? How well do these texts kind of fit um, do they sort of reflect an accurate knowledge of the time and place that Jesus lived? Um, and I think it's fair to say that, um, particularly with um, developments in archaeology in the last few decades, but also with discoveries of um, texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which shed a lot of light on kind of Judaism um, at the time of Jesus. Um, it's become very clear that the Gospels really are very well plugged into the, the atmosphere, the, the way of life of the time and place in which Jesus lived. Um, and we could talk about this later, but, and this actually contrasts quite starkly with some of the sort of so-called apocryphal Gospels, ones that weren't included in the New Testament that were written quite a lot later, that really show almost no awareness of the real kind of time and place in which Jesus lived. And so the Gospels are chock full of incidental details about the geography of Jerusalem and Galilee. Um, There's all sorts of um, small incidental details about places that that you just wouldn't be able to guess. Um, The the way of life, the the religious atmosphere, and the the different kind of sects within Judaism... um, which were basically all kind of destroyed, and uh, you were really left with just Pharisaic Judaism after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. But the Gospels really understand the, the different complex relationships between these, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, the Zealots, and so on. So let me just zoom in a little bit and give you a few examples of this. Um, so John's Gospel in chapter 5 it says that in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool called in Hebrew Bethesda, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Um, now, at the beginning of the 20th century, a skeptical French scholar called Alfred Lazi wrote that the pool was just kind of a symbol of Judaism, and the five porticos an allusion to the five books of the law. So he gives it a symbolic reading, on the, and the thought being that John's gospel, you know, being latest and seemingly being the most sort of theological gospel, um, it's probably just making this stuff up for symbolic value. But the Pool of Bethesda was excavated in 1956, and the, the excavation and, and the details it uncovered about this pool match really strikingly with the description in John's gospel. <clears throat> 
Um, it, the location is right. It is indeed near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. Um, and it has five porticos or archways, as John's Gospel said. And, and you can go there today. I was there about four months ago. You can walk around, and um, it's, it is really quite remarkable um, the, the level of detail that, that John um, reflects in his gospel, it, the, the information he was drawing on must have gone back to someone who knew Jerusalem as it was uh, before the Romans destroyed it. Um, there's lots more examples. Um, one of my favorite ones, the top left, this um, fishing boat, which was found uh, on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And they pulled it out and had to really quickly um, preserve it. Um, and it, it it's been dated to the first century, and it's, it is the kind of fishing boat. No, I don't think anyone's saying it's the one, but it's the kind of fishing boat that Jesus and his disciples would have uh, gone around the, the Sea of Galilee in. And, and it kind of matches with what the Gospels say about um, the way that they travel around. You know, Jesus and his 12 disciples, well, this fishing boat would fit about 15 people. Um, there's, other, there's many, many other examples that could be given. Um, on the right hand is a, a, a tomb cut out of rock of the sort that <clears throat> the Gospels say that Jesus was buried in, where a rock would have been rolled in front of it to seal the tomb. Um, at the bottom is a crucified, uh, a heel bone of a crucified man with the nail still left in it, confirming um, that even crucifixion victims would have been given a proper Jewish burial. Now, here's um, a really interesting discovery that was made only in the last um, decade or so, and particularly brought to attention by a, a scholar called Richard Borkham, um, who was at St. Andrews for a long time. And um, so if you see on the, the left hand, uh, the bottom left-hand corner, that picture is of something called an ossuary, so that's basically a bone box, a stone box in which ancient Jews around the time of Jesus would gather up the bones of the dead and they would uh, bury them in these boxes and they would often inscribe the name on the side. And archaeologists have found something like 3,000 of these ossuaries with names on from around the time of Jesus. And so this is a really amazing kind of resource because you, what you can do is start to build up a really detailed picture of what kind of names people had around the time of Jesus. And you can even, you know, start to say, well, what are the percentages of, of names that people had? So, what percentage of the men were called Jesus, or what percentage were called Simon, and so on. And then you can do a really interesting test, which is you can look at the Gospels, uh, New Testament Gospels, where in total there's something like a hundred different named Jewish characters. And you can say, well, let's look at the percentages of the people in the Gospels who have various names. You know, what percentage of the men have the name Simon? It's about 9.8. You can compare it then with this big archaeologist database of about 3,000 names, and you can say, how close is the match? And I won't kind of read this all out. Um, hopefully, you can sort of see it um, from a distance there, but um, the match really is quite striking. It's not perfect, um, and in fact, it might be a bit suspicious if it was perfect, but it is really quite close. And the point is just this. 
the, the, the gospel authors could never have faked this kind of correspondence to the naming patterns in the time and place that Jesus lived. Um, and also, it just wouldn't have occurred to them that his scholars in 2,000 years would have the means to check this kind of thing. Um, they didn't have access to the sort of survey data that you would need to be able to do this. And it just gives us a, a glimpse of just the quality of the information that they must have had available. Because um, the modern studies of psychology um, and memory in particular seem to say that when you, someone tells you a story and there's a minor character whose name is, is in that story, the names of minor characters are one of the first things that you'll forget when you retell that story. And so if the gospel authors got this stuff right, then how much more uh, should they be able to get the big stuff right? Okay, so let's finally move on to this third question, um, that of independent sources. Um, okay, so the New Testament isn't just one source, even though obviously in a modern Bible it's kind of bound together on, under one cover. So scholars uh, will say that um, the New Testament contains maybe six or seven independent sources, and here we're not really so much talking about like the, diff- the number of different books in the New Testament, the 27, but rather the number of kind of separate streams of information, if you like. And so Paul is one source, and we said earlier, Paul's letters are widely thought to be the earliest um, sources in the New Testament. But then you've got um, what's known as the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, but those, that's not quite the way that scholars divide up the number of sources there, um, because there clearly is some relationship between those three Gospels. And what most scholars today will say, in fact, the vast majority, is that Mark's Gospel was written first, and that Luke and Matthew then used Mark as a source. That's not a bad thing, by the way. It's actually a very good thing from a historical point of view. The fact that Luke and Matthew are using earlier sources shows that they're doing what historians do. Um, then there's this um, slightly more contested source called Q that would account for things like the sermon, in the sermon on the Mount that Matthew and Luke both have that isn't in Mark. Then um, Matthew has some material that's just in his gospel. Luke has some material that's just in his and most people think that John's gospel is substantially separate again. Um, and I should say that, that there are some scholars, an increasing number, who would question this Q source and would just say, well, actually it was that Luke used Matthew and Mark. Um, but in any case, that's nonetheless five separate sources. And as we'll see in a minute, there's also at least a couple of really quite significant sources written by ancient non-Christian authors. In fact, depending on how you count, there's up to 12. But uh, Josephus and Tacitus are the most important. And here's a really key point. Um, these multiple independent sources, um, they agree on the gist of what Jesus was like. The, the core story of Jesus is attested um, throughout these different sources. Um, and that doesn't mean they have all the same particular stories or particular details. And in fact, if they did, then we would end up thinking they're probably not independent. 
But what's really powerful is that when you have a number of separate sources that all attest to the same gist or the same core story, that gives a very high degree of confidence. And it's worth bearing in mind that in ancient history, it's kind of a luxury to have more than one source talking about an event. So much documentation has been lost. Um, And so if you have two sources separate from each other talking in broadly the same terms about an event that really gives quite a high degree of confidence in the core details of that event. So when you have four, five, or even six sources all giving you the same kind of gist, the same core story, then that really is um, a very solid basis. Um, And that really is what accounts for, if you remember earlier, I was saying E.P. Sanders gives this list of facts about Jesus' life that are agreed by virtually all scholars. It's, it's really because they're just attested so strongly in these different sources. That, that would be one of the main reasons. And so Bart Ehrman, as I said, you know, he's someone you might think of as a bit skeptical, um, but this is nonetheless what he says. He says, these sources are independent of one another, yet they were written, uh, they were written in different places, yet many of them, independent though they be, agree on many of the basic aspects of Jesus' life and death. He was a Jewish teacher of Palestine who was crucified on order of Pontius Pilate, for example. They could not have been dreamed up independently of one another by Christians all over the map because they agree on too many of the fundamentals. Um, Dale Allison is a a, um, historical Jesus scholar. Arguably, um, some people would say he's the the top historical Jesus scholar today. And he has um, written a number of books where he suggested that when you, uh, um, what what you want in particular is not so much um, where you have two stories talking about exactly the same saying of Jesus or exactly the same, you know, deed that Jesus did uh, independently of each other. I mean, that's good, but but what Dale Allison says is that when you have multiple sources that give the same kind of um, vibe, if you like, the same kind of uh, the same themes keep coming through. That, for instance, that Jesus um, talked about himself in strikingly um, exalted terms. Um, that Jesus healed people. When these kind of themes, not necessarily particular stories, but when these themes just keep coming through really strongly in all our sources. That gives us a very high degree of confidence in that, in those core um, claims about what Jesus, the kind of thing Jesus did and said. And so, um, Allison concludes that <clears throat> Jesus must have thought highly of John the Baptist, for example. Um, he must have re- repeatedly spoken of God as Father. He must have composed parables, must have come into conflict with religious authorities. He was reputed to be a successful exorcist, healer, and wonder worker. Um, Whatever titles he may or may not have used, Allison concludes, Jesus probably believed himself not to be not just a prophet, but the personal locus of the end-time scenario, the central figure in the Last Judgment. And that's really uh, quite a striking list. And, And I should say, when you read Dale Allison, he's certainly not kind of an apologist at all, and he is quite skeptical and very ready to just kind of toss out certain stories as, you know, being made up. But he says, nonetheless, when you step back and you look at the general impression you get, these things just seem extremely hard to deny. 
Now, it's important to say um, that we're not just reliant on um, sources written by Christians, um, and, and also the fact that, they, that many of the sources are written by Christians doesn't mean that historians can't use them. Um, they, they have appropriate tools for kind of testing them and so on, as we've just seen. But I think it is helpful to know as well that there are some non-Christian sources that confirm the basic story about Jesus. Uh, Flavius Josephus was a Jewish aristocrat, and he was writing near to the end of the first century. Um, he was uh, raised in Jerusalem, and so he, his, his parents would have been uh, contemporaries of Jesus. And so, Josephus had access to very good information about Jesus. There's no reason to think he would have been reliant just on what the Christians were saying. And there's this passage in uh, his work, The Antiquities, where he um, he gives a kind of short paragraph, but nonetheless one that contains some important facts about Jesus' life. And this is what he says, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of surprising works, a teacher of such men as re- received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to himself both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for they reported that he appeared alive to them. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. I should just say, the text of this passage has clearly had a few things added to it by some Christian scribes. Well, that's what most scholars think. But you can, it seems, fairly confidently weed out those bits. And so, I have actually taken out those bits Um, from what I just read to you. Um, Tacitus is a a Roman uh, author. He was a senator writing in the early second century, so still within a century of Jesus' crucifixion. And Tacitus, um, in a fairly brief passage, but nonetheless, again, fits with what the New Testament says. He says this, Christus, from whom the name Christian had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Just a final one I'll mention, uh, Pliny the Younger uh, was also a Roman governor, and he was writing a sort of report to the emperor of his day, the Emperor Trajan, this is the early second century, and he says, the Christians in his province were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. So, this is interesting because it's an, a relatively early non-Christian source attesting that the Christians were worshiping Jesus as divine. And so, I think it is just worth stepping back and noticing that you know, imagine we didn't have the New Testament at all. We could still know a fair amount about Jesus, um, and this, this list kind of sums that up. So, we, we would know that he was known as a moral teacher and a wise man, someone with a reputation as a miracle worker. Um, we'd know that his followers thought he was the Jewish Messiah. We'd know about his crucifixion um, under Pontius Pilate and so on, um, and that his movement kind of stopped briefly but then started again. Um, we, we would perhaps know that his followers reported that Jesus appeared to them alive, um, 
and that they were subject to violent persecution within the first few decades. And as I said, significantly, we'd know that they would meet on a certain fixed day uh, to worship Jesus together. And so, um, in conclusion, um, the, the situation today is that the core story of Jesus is um, really quite historically robust, and that's a conclusion that holds weight even when you just look at mainstream secular scholarship, not kind of going to the, the sort of um, evangelical apologists who if you, you might think kind of have a dog in the fight, but just going to people like E.P. Sanders and Dale Allison, the core story, the themes um, of Jesus' life are, are really quite solidly established today. And so, in closing, I would really just like to encourage you, if you haven't picked up one of the Gospels, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life, just um, you can take a copy of Mark's Gospel from the back. And I would really just encourage you to read this um, with the thought that, you know, this isn't kind of folklore, it's not Middle Earth, this is Middle Eastern history, um, and just to read it with those eyes um, and let it speak to you. Thank you very much. Max, um, thank you. There was so much in that. I found myself scribbling down an awful lot, and I was trying to keep an eye on the questions as well. Um, what we're going to do now is just allow ourselves around a minute, two minutes, to just um, kind of take a breather, <laughs> to just um, process what we've heard. This would be a really good time um, to turn to those you came with, maybe, and to chat to them about what they thought about Max said. It might be that you've kind of got completely different things that you heard that have kind of struck a chord with you and you want to find out more about. It's also a good chance, if you haven't already, to get onto Slido to ask your questions. The instructions are there on the screen. Remember, there's paper halfway back down the church as well. If you have written a question on a bit of paper, um, can you just sort of bring it forward at some point during the next couple of minutes so that we can have it with us here at the front? But let's just take a couple of minutes, turn, chat to those around you, talk about what you've heard, and then in a minute we'll pop back up and we'll have a chance to answer some of those questions. Thank you. To it in the Q&A, then I'll, I'll delegate over to Max at this point. He will be around afterwards. Do feel you can grab him. He's very happy to stick around and to field some questions. The other thing I will try to do is, is combine what people are asking, because there's lots of different questions that kind of approach the, the same thing from different angles. Um, so we'll try and do that too, but I'm sorry in advance that we can't get through everything. Um, Max, first question. Here's a, here's a fun one to get you started on. Um, someone's asked whether... So do the same arguments that you've just put forward for the gospel authenticity, do they apply to the texts of other religions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think the first thing to say there is not all of the major religions of the world make historical claims in the way that Christianity does. So there are um, religions like Hinduism, which um, talks a lot about Krishna, for example, but those stories about Krishna are supposed to have unfolded in kind of parallel worlds almost. And so there really isn't even any kind of way to test historically those claims. So I think, as I said, what we have to look at is firstly which religions are making historical claims that we could even begin to assess in the way I've tried to suggest we can assess the claims of Christianity. And really that boils down to not, not that many, to be honest. Um, Christianity, Judaism, um, and of course there's a very kind of um, special relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Um, 
and Christianity would sort of lay claim to the Old Testament um, and would claim that Jesus fulfills that. So then there are historical questions about the Old Testament. Um, but then, then there's, of course, Islam, which makes claims about this figure of Muhammad who lived in um, the 6th and 7th centuries in Arabia. And I think that probably is the best comparison case. So let me just say a little bit about that. So um, I talked about the time gap between Jesus' life and the sources being written and how it's really quite a small time gap um, by the standards of ancient history and how there's all sorts of indications that the gospel authors knew the kinds of things that they would only be able to know if they were accessing eyewitness information. When you come to Muhammad, um, of course, there's the Quran, but the Quran doesn't really tell you about the origins of Islam, if you like, in the way that Christianity, uh, the New Testament tells you about the origins of Christianity. The Quran um, doesn't kind of really talk about Muhammad. I think it only mentions him four times, and it doesn't really say how this religion got going. For that, you have to go to a number of texts, um, which are sort of collectively known as the Hadith and the Surah, and um, the striking difference is that, so Muhammad is supposed to have died in 632 AD, according to the kind of classical story of Islam's origins. The kind of most trusted um, source which talks about Muhammad's life and the origins of Islam is, um, is a collection known as Sai Bukhari. But the thing is that that wasn't really put together until about 850 AD. So really, you're, you're more than 200 years after the events. Um, and what's more, when you actually start to look at the kind of, when you start to do those tests on, do they know the places, are they getting this kind of stuff right? A number of glaring errors start to jump out in terms of the descriptions of Mecca actually don't fit at all with what Mecca um, was like geographically and so on. Um, and so, um, I mean, there's a whole lot more that could be said here, but all that to say, in terms of um, the historical texts that talk about Muhammad and the origins of Islam, the time gap is much, much bigger. And um, when we kind of try to test those texts in terms of, are they getting right things like, um, you know, accurate geography, um, things about <clears throat> the customs and the way of life, there are some quite serious problems there. Um, and so I suppose I would say that um, we can apply those tests, but when we do apply those tests, the results are really quite different. Great, thank you. Um, that sounds like there's a whole load more you could say about mm -hmm. that, and I know that if people have more questions, mm -hmm. I would encourage you, because yep. there's a whole mm -hmm. load around that, but thank you. Um, so there's also a number of questions that have come in about, um, I guess you'd, you'd loosely group them in kind of accuracy of the gospel accounts yep. themselves. So if we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mm -hmm. um, questions like... Yeah, uh, would there be an incentive for the gospel writers to exaggerate what they mm. said? Mm -hmm. um, to what extent can we read the words of Jesus in the Gospels as um, kind of word for word for what mm -hmm. he actually said? Mm -hmm. um, things like how do we account for Jesus' individual experiences and, and what we've written about those? And then the manuscript issues as well are kind of different sources. Yeah. Can you just unpack a little bit? You'd sort of touched on it, but what, what, what your understanding of that is and how we might begin to answer that question of, of gospel yeah. authenticity. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, as I said, I mean, th in general, there's basically, well, sorry, I didn't say this. In general, there's sort of two directions we can come at this from. One direction is we can say, okay, how long afterwards were these documents written? Who wrote them? 
what kind of access did they have, what's human memory like, you know, how does oral tradition work? And we can think about all those things and we can kind of come up with some sort of prediction like, well, based on them being written 30 years after, 30, 40, 50 years after, by people who were no more than, say, two, three steps removed from the eyewitnesses and, you know, factoring stuff in that we know about human memory, you might expect them to be, like, 70% reliable, something like that. Now, I kind of think that I'm not particularly happy with that as, like, the, as kind of the last word on the subject, because then I, I think you can sort of come at this from a completely different direction, which is to say, okay, when we actually look at these texts and we test them, um, <clears throat> we test them with respect to what other external sources are saying, we test them with respect to archaeology, um, all, all these sorts of things. We test them with respect to kind of the, the patterns of the names, as I was mentioning. How well do they do, in fact? Um, <clears throat> and, I, and I only touched on this fairly briefly, but when we do do these kinds of tests, the, the New Testament authors do extremely well. So in a sense, I think that that's almost the more important test to apply, to come at it from that direction and say, look, we've got these texts in front of us. There's a number of ways we can test how well they actually did do, rather than us just kind of speculating about how well they would do given this gap in time and given that sort of thing. And I think that sort of thing is important, um, and I touched on it a bit, um, but I, I think what we can say is that we're not just stuck with sort of some prediction about how well they would do based on how long after they were written by whom and so on. We, we can actually test how well they have done, in fact. And, and as I said, they, when we do those kinds of tests, they do do extremely well. Um, there were a few other things in there, James, that you yep. touched on, manuscripts. Yep. manuscripts. <coughs> Do you want to just pick out that a little bit as well? Yeah, so I didn't talk about this at all, but yes, I mean, you know, everything I've talked about is in terms of you know, how well have these texts preserved the events. I haven't talked about kind of how carefully, were, once the texts were written, how carefully were they then transmitted down through history. So, I mean, one thing that um, has to be said up front is that we don't have the original manuscripts of any of the books of the New Testament. But that shouldn't be surprising because we don't have the original manuscripts of any literary work from antiquity. So what we have are copies of copies of copies. And um, sometimes people think, oh, that's a little bit alarming. But um, again, it, that is completely ordinary um, given ancient history. Um, and I think what can be helpful just to bring out the situation with the New Testament is a couple of comparisons. So uh, Tacitus, I mentioned briefly towards the end of the talk. So Tacitus' work, The Annals of Imperial Rome, is a, a really important text um, for historians of um, that period of Roman history. And um, that text, um, that, that book of um, Tacitus's, The Annals of Imperial Rome, has come down to us in just two manuscripts. And they're both medieval manuscripts from over a century after the original was written. So they're, you know, not just copies of copies, but copies of copies of copies and so on. Um, and what's more, they're only partial manuscripts. So there's one manuscript which sort of covers part of Tacitus' works. There's another which covers another part. Um, so we don't even kind of have two manuscripts covering the same bit of text. <clears throat> but um, 
there really isn't much doubt among scholars that we basically have the text that Tacitus wrote down. <clears throat> so then when we go to the New Testament, um, there really is kind of an abundance of riches in terms of early manuscripts. So I said, the, the earliest manuscript for Tacitus's work is a thousand years after. The earliest manuscript for the New Testament is a fragment of John's Gospel called P52. Uh, it's in a library in Manchester. And it's, it's generally dated to uh, about the kind of middle of the second century. So it's really just, you know, 50, 60 years or so after the original was written. Um, and, you know, and in terms of more generally the number of fragments of uh, Greek manuscripts that are just within two to three hundred years of the originals being written, um, there's several hundred now. Um, and so, and some of those include kind of full sort of copies of all of the books of the New Testament together. So when you kind of put that all together, um, and you, when you compare it with what's normal for ancient history in terms of the number of copies that have come down to us, uh, the situation with the New Testament is, is really quite favorable indeed. There's an abundance of manuscripts so that scholars can kind of lie them down next to each other and say, okay, yes, and of course there are some variations in those manuscripts, but there's so many different manuscripts that scholars are, are pretty confident that they can reconstruct the original text. And there's a whole discipline called um, textual criticism, which is devoted to the, the sort of science of how you get back to the original text. But it, if that you know, thought about variations worries you, it's worth knowing as well that variations um, where you know, one manuscript says one thing, another manuscript says something slightly different, um, those really only affect a small proportion of the text of the New Testament. And as even you know, Bart Ehrman, this slightly skeptical scholar, has said, no kind of cardinal doctrine of Christianity is affected at all by any of these textual variants. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah, so much in that. Conscious of time, I'd love to get just a couple more questions in. Um, <clears throat> one, someone has asked this one, which I think is really interesting. Um, so you've talked a lot about the, the, the non-Christian historians and their perspective on the kind of validity of the Gospels. Just, I don't know if you can answer this briefly or not, but what, what's the view of those non-Christian historians when it comes to the miraculous events described in the Gospel? And we're talking modern day uh, non-Christian I, 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 historians. I don't know, but let's assume so. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, I could talk about both. I mean, what's interesting is that... Um, you know, we know that there were pagan critics of Christianity within a couple of centuries of Jesus. Um, there was a, a, an author called Celsus who was writing, um, and he, was, he, he kind of um, knew the New Testament, and he was, uh, we don't have his works, but we have the works of someone who is responding to him. Um, so we, we can kind of know some of what he said. And what's interesting is that he took it for granted that Jesus did indeed have this miracle working reputation. And, and more generally, um, the non-Christian sources in the ancient world that talk about Jesus, um, none of them kind of challenge this claim that he, did, that he did amazing deeds. But what they do is try and ascribe it to a, a, a sort of um, nefarious source. So some of the Jewish texts which talk about Jesus will say that he was a sorcerer or a magician, which is interesting because they're, they're acknowledging that he did these amazing deeds, but they're just saying it, it came from a bad source. Okay, in terms of modern historians, um, yeah, something that's quite striking is that 
that there is basically a unanimous consensus among um, contemporary historical Jesus scholars that Jesus was a healer and exorcist. Um, just to get a sense of how kind of unanimous this consensus is, so there was a scholar called Rudolf Bultmann in the 20th century who doubted almost everything it's possible to doubt about Jesus, <laughs> except that, that he you know, was a guy who lived I mean, and that he was crucified. I think that's about all Bultmann would accept. But um, he, he um, and another thing he accepted about Jesus was that he must have um, done amazing deeds that looked miraculous to onlookers. So, um, and why is it that um, this is so kind of solidly established? Well, I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier about when you have multiple sources that they don't just attest the same particular event or saying, they, the, the same kind of gist over and over again, even if it's a different kind of event, but the same theme is there. And so what scholars notice is that in every um, <clears throat> strand, every kind of stream of information about Jesus, every layer, you have stories about Jesus performing healings. And the thought is just, if you like, there's no smoke without fire. There's just too many different people claiming um, that Jesus did these kinds of things for it to have come from thin air. And so what scholars today will say, if they're non-Christians, is that, um, so E.P. Sanders is a good example. He says that Jesus was a healer, which is to say he must have done things, he must have in some way kind of prompted these quite dramatic recoveries in people. Um, and But Sanders will say he as for what the cause of that is, um, he doesn't know. And in a sense, as a historian, he's kind of saying that's almost sort of beyond my remit to talk about. But what historians can say is that Jesus must have done things that looked miraculous. Great, thank you. Um, we could go on, and it would be brilliant to go on, but I'm conscious of time. Just, <clears throat> just help us now. So we've, been, we've kind of come at this so far, quite rightly, from a sort of academic kind of um, historical source-based perspective, which is really right and really helpful. Um, but I wonder, just to end this Q&A, if you could share a little bit about what this actually means for you as an individual and as someone who's studied it, where does this lead you? Yeah. Thank you, James. Well, yeah. Um, so, I mean, when I was about 20, I started looking into Christianity properly for the first time. I'd had a bit of Sunday school when I was younger. But... Um, through various, sort of meeting various people um, whose lifestyles I was just quite impressed by, I sort of thought, okay, maybe I do need to start taking this seriously. And perhaps, you know, so um, I had a, a, if you like, two-stage conversion. I believed in God before I believed in the specific claim that Jesus was God. So in terms of what moved me from that you know, believing that, okay, there might be some sort of person behind this cosmos to believing that it's, you know, Jesus was God in the flesh. Um, I think it really was looking into this kind of stuff and just getting that sense that when you, and again, I, I would just really encourage you to read the Gospels for yourselves. And this is something that really struck me quite powerfully. I suppose even before I started to dig into more of this scholarship and look at kind of the arguments for authenticity, just when you read uh, Mark's gospel, there's something that's really kind of um, compelling about it. It's, it's sort of, um, at this, it's really quite understated. And this is something a number of people have, have remarked upon. You know, you, you, you think, well, 
you know, stories about Jesus performing miracles, um, it sounds so kind of outlandish, but actually when you read the Gospel of Mark, it's so kind of understated. Um, and the way that um, Jesus interacts with human beings, um, there's something so kind of tangible and so just compelling about um, the way Jesus treats people, um, people sort of on the margins of society, and um, the way that he simultaneously kind of holds his line really quite strongly in the face of these sort of religious figures like the Pharisees who thought quite highly of their own righteousness. Jesus is quite strong with them, but he's so compassionate with people who kind of know how broken they are. And all of that just seemed to, it seems to kind of jump off the page, and it really did for me. And, And that claim that Jesus makes on people when he meets them, you know, follow me. And that just really jumped out of the page at me. And I, I just found I couldn't turn away from that. Max, thank you. Um, like I mentioned, you're going to be around after the service is mm-hmm. done, so there'll be um, plenty of opportunity to, to pick up that conversation. And let me just also flag, um, what, what might you do next? Where might you go from here? Well, Max has already mentioned a couple of times, um, the best place to start really is to pick up a gospel and to read it. That is really the, the best place to begin. We've got at the back on the table in the room where you came in um, these copies of Mark's gospel. There's a couple of stacks of those, and we would love it if you took one of those away with you this evening. So take it and read it and see if you find, as Max did, that compelling person of Jesus leap off the page. But um, having spent the last few minutes talking about the Gospels, really the best place to start to get to know them and to get to know Jesus is in Mark's Gospel. So pick one of those up. You'll also find at the back, um, if you want to read a little more around this subject, there's a copy of Ocker's Reflect magazine, which is a beautiful publication, just looking at a whole range of different questions. You'll find them at the back too. There's also a bookstall, um, which Ocker have kindly provided for this evening, and there's some books that will allow you to really go deeper on this. So if you're sitting here thinking, well, this has just really scratched the surface for me, and I want to find out more, then there's some books at the back as well. So go and look at those and see if any of those would be helpful. So there's books, there's gospels, there's a magazine. Um, just to say as well in terms of what's happening here, well, we have a regular worshipping pattern here at St. Andrews and you're more than welcome to join us at any of our services. All the details are on the notice sheet or on the website, but we'd love to see you maybe next week at this service, six o'clock. If you come back next week, you'll be really welcome to join us for dinner. We do supper after the service once a month, so well, that's happening next week. We've also got events happening over Lent. The next of these big questions events is taking place on Sunday the 15th of March. We're just putting the final details into place as to who's going to come and to what the topic is going to be. But Sunday the 15th of March, if you want to find out more. And also, just quickly, you should have had a response card that looks like this as you came in. If, um, if any of the things on the response card apply to you on the back in terms of follow-up or how we can help you ask these questions, we'll fill it in at some point. And there's a basket at the back on the way out. You can drop those in too. So lots of different ways you can respond. Come and chat to us afterwards as well. But why don't we just say thank you again to Max for all he shared this evening. Max, thank you. And friends, I'm going to invite us... Thanks, Max. I'm going to invite Adam and the band up as well, and we're just going to sing one final song together just as we prepare to go out. And a reminder that after this song, um, I will say a few words of blessing, but then you're more than welcome.